Welcome to episode 302 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. We've all been part of a disengaged online audience, quiet, distracted, off camera. You can almost hear the crickets when the presenter asks any questions. We also know that you do not want that when you're holding your online event. You want your audience to ask questions, participate in the chat, be on camera, and share their opinion. That's exactly what my free online facilitation series will give you the tools to make happen in seven quick tutorial videos. You'll learn how to interrupt Yep, you heard that right. Use captions, polls, and wheel of names to create enhanced engagement. With these skills, you'll take your audience from snoozing to schmoozing. You'll get this resource and over 30 of our most requested Zoom tutorial videos at robbysamuels.com forward slash videos. Again, that's robbysamuels.com forward slash videos. Now, if you're ready to dive even deeper, you can attend my online facilitation and purpose-first design workshop on November 2nd. During this two-hour session, we'll design together a thoughtful, deliberate online event focused on purpose, intent, and the expectations of your participants. You will learn how to use knowledge gaps to get your audience to stop multitasking during your session, how to design your panels to respond to the most common objections to taking action, and how to make it easy for your participants to go from inspiration to action. Let's work together to make your next online session one that will not just be attended, it will be memorable. Register at robbysamuels.com forward slash better zoom. Again, that's robbysamuels.com forward slash better zoom. Now onto this week's interview. Today's guest empowers the dreamers, partners with the doers, educates the thinkers, and inspires the aspiring. She has a very unique bragging right of being Etsy's first attorney and their 17th employee overall. For over nine years, she helped Etsy scale from an inconspicuous startup to a publicly traded company. After that, she joined V-Room as its first general counsel. In 2018, the New York Law Journal awarded her with a GC Impact Award. Apart from being a startup attorney, she's a jeweler, investor, board member, and speaker. She won the New York Law Journal's 2018 General Counsel Impact Award and created America's Ugliest Necklace. She's a playwright with hilarious new show, Dirty Legal Secrets. Please join me in welcoming Sarah Feingold. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) Thanks for having you uh, talk about your ugliest necklace. It made me actually go and look that up. (laughs) We'll perhaps mention that again later in the show and I'll have to put a link in the show notes. It's I was curious. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's one of those quirky, weird things that I just can't, I, I can't stop mentioning, research. you know? Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> so welcome. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I love this question. And um, I was thinking about it. And I think I define leadership or I do define leadership as you notice a light bulb that's out. And you figure out how to change the light bulb. And then you 
get a light bulb so that, you know, you're helping the next person from the light bulb goes out again. And, and that's an analogy basically saying that you're, you're spotting an issue, you're figuring out how to solve the issue. And you're also figuring out how to scale the situation. So when the issue happens again, there's a solution. I love this visual. It's, it's really great. I mean, one might even say it's illuminating. It's illuminating because everyone, everyone could see the light bulb and maybe it's not really bothering some people and maybe it's bothering a couple others and they think it's someone else's job. As a leader, it's your job. You know, years ago, I would volunteer and you can tell who was the volunteer who really cared and who didn't based on whether or not you would pick up the sign that fell off the wall, you know, those little things. And I feel right. like I spend my life now doing that. So that's really cool. When did you start to realize you had some of these skills or traits to be a good leader? I just care maybe too much. And um, I think I've always been a little bit pushy and a little bit questiony asking. Um, and so I think just naturally, I've just been seeing things and trying to figure out how to solve the issue and how to scale the solution for the future. So give me some examples from earlier in life. From earlier in life. So, oh goodness. I, I, I guess from earlier in life, I've always been entrepreneurial. And then when you're entrepreneurial, it's sort of like being a leader. I remember as a young kid, I went and bought a bunch of bubble gum and I was selling it on the bus and I got in trouble for that. So I do think I was a leader because I was very entrepreneurial and thinking this is a way to make some money. Um, and I was breaking some rules, which is, I think sometimes a leader's got to do that as well. You know, I can, I can very much relate to this story about selling things at school. Um, so were what you did you type- sell? Am I allowed to ask you questions? Is that, that allowed? That's fine. We can make okay. this conversation. Um, okay. <laughs> initially it was gum Oh. in junior high. It led to candy of all kinds. Um, I actually got my parents to get a BJ's membership in order for me to get candy like, every other day. It felt like I was constantly going back in and eventually it became bagel sandwiches. On the schmooze, so, eat the yeah, bagels. That's where the bagels the actually originated from. That's right. <laughs> so yeah. like what kind of kid were you showing up on the on the you know playground? Did you run for office? <laughs> were you organizing your friends? You know, it sounds I, like I you did. weren't a weren't a quiet child. I, no, I imagine. I've never been a quiet child. I get kicked out of every library I go into. Um I was the art student. I've always been creating things. I love the art studio experimenting. And I think that's what's so cool about art is you can try something and fail at it and you can visually see the problem and and kind of move forward in a lot of different mediums. You can't do that. So I I love the art studio. Um, That's where I was as a young kid. That's my place. And were there any people that you sort of looked up to? Maybe you didn't, you wouldn't have called them leaders, but you thought they were kind of cool or maybe they saw potential in you and push you to do more? Probably, you know, always the art teachers are always pushing me um, to experiment more. When you get into your comfort zone and you're making the same thing over and over again, they're trying to push you to use different medium or to think about uh, using a tool in a different way and express your creativity um, outside what you're comfortable with. And I think um, seeing other people experimenting was, was really important to my artistic journey. So as you got a little older, you know, preteen, teenager, did you have a, a strong sense of what you wanted to be when you grew up? Was there yeah. like a clear path forward? Totally. No, there was not. Um, but a little bit. I, I, I'm a jeweler and I've been making jewelry since I was young and I knew I did not want to do that. 
And the reason I did not want to do that is so physically tolling. I don't know if you've ever made jewelry, but like my fingers were bleeding, my back hurt, my little, even my teenage eyes were like really hurting from like staring at these little things. Um, and so from a young age, I always knew that art was going to be part of me, but it was never going to be my career. Um, and that's when I got interested in law because I started thinking about like, how could I help artists? What kind of questions did they have? This is such an interesting leap, particularly at a young age. You know, <laughs> most people at any age have a hard time letting go of a passion in a thoughtful, logical, you know, way. It's like taken from them. Like they can't do anymore physically. But you made the decision before your eyesight was impaired and your fingers were numb. But you still knew you wanted to have a connection. I'm so curious about this brainstorming session that led you to law. Like, you know, I don't think art <laughs> artists and jeweler immediately think, oh, clearly interested in the law. But was it really just a brainstorming for yourself? The other people involved in that conversation saying like, well, what, you know, what can I do to really support artists? I mean, you could have opened a gallery, you could open yeah. a shop, you could have you know, like, True. Good, done good serve, points. <laughs> yeah, like I guess more traditionally expected roles for people in art, uh, in the art world. Well, really, like what pushed you in this direction? Did you know any attorneys? Like, yeah, uh, yeah no, I, I knew a bunch of attorneys, but not in this area of law. I was I was in college and I went and I chose my college by its uh, metalsmithing program. But I specifically applied saying I want to take metalsmithing, but I don't want to major in it. And a lot of schools said you can take metalsmithing if you're an art major. Right. But there are very few schools out there that said you can take metalsmithing and you don't have to be an art major. So that's I knew from a very beginning, I want to continue making stuff out of metal. I do not want to major in this. Um, but as for the brainstorming session, I think it really happened um, and during a business class. I was minoring in business, naturally. I mean, we were just having a conversation about candy, which I do want to continue offline because candy is delicious and should be a meal. Um, and I took a business class and then I took a business law class. And that sort of got my little gears moving in my teenage brain, thinking maybe law school is the next natural step in my world. I'm having flashbacks to taking a business law class and realizing I didn't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> so we can go both ways. Very clarifying class. Oops. Oops. Yeah. yeah. I went I went in one direction, you went in the other, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, both did, ended up in a good place, the way we were supposed to be. Yeah. So you you went in to this, you know, to four-year school, knowing this is the the sort of goal was to figure out the other adjacent uh, opportunity to art. You wanted to stick with metalsmithing. Once you're on a lawyer track, it's a it's pretty well defined track, um, but it often gears towards really corporate. I mean, that's where a lot of people go in. Maybe you don't go in wanting that, but you realize how much debt you have, and your ideals against like paying off school debt can be kind of challenging. What was your take on that as you were leaving with this degree, like, and thinking about paths forward? Did you end up in a corporate like yeah. a, you know, lawyer environment? Absolute fear. Absolute. I was just scared. I was scared. I let, I, I graduated law school without a job. I graduated law school without a place to live. Like I moved into my child childhood bedroom with my parents. Uh, I was still making art. So it was like loserville. Like I felt so terrible. I felt, I felt like a terrible sitcom, right? Like I just, I felt really bad that I had gone into all this debt and I'm like back where I started. Right. Um, so I did get a job at a law firm. But then I real I, I didn't like it. It wasn't for me. And I realized that really, really quickly. I think I always knew it, but you had to like try it. 
Um, and so I started trying to figure out how can I put my love of art together with this law degree that I have. So I started pitching galleries and um, different different seminars. I, I was saying, I want to talk to your people about copyright and trademark and artist protection. And I will, I am, I'm an expert in this. I wasn't, I mean, I pretended to be like, we all pretend to be. Um, and I put together little PowerPoint presentations and I did this stuff for free just because I needed to build up my personal brand because I needed to get out. What year is this that we're talking about personal brand? Oh my gosh, you're going to date me. I'm so old. No, um, I think this was like, I graduated law school in 2005. So this was probably 2006 or around yeah. that. Mm -hmm. it, it's so interesting because I wasn't aware of personal brand uh, back then. In the I, way I think I was using it. the word, today's word, but back then I was like, yeah. I need some expertise, right? Yeah. What are you known for? And a lot of law lawyers go narrow and deep and they focus on something very, very specific. And I thought, what is that thing I'm going to focus on specifically? And you started to offer these pro bono talks in order to build up some credibility, get your name out there. Did it lead to any kind of revenue before you found this big breakthrough at Etsy or did you know? <laughs> I mean, I was, I was like maybe breaking even, um, I wasn't charging very much, if anything. I just really wanted it. But my first time I did a, a talk, it it was terrible. I just, I I felt like I completely bombed it. I needed to get practice. Um, I didn't realize how terrible I was when I got up on stage. Um, I was glad I wasn't charging that much. I mean, that's what every speaker needs, though, is the reps, right? You need stage yeah. time. To, yep. I always say, don't judge me on the first five efforts. Judge me on my last five efforts. That's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. So uh, where in all this did Etsy pop in your like uh, awareness? I mean, yeah. it was a small thing. It wasn't widely known. Like you probably knew about it because your art connections, I imagine yep. earlier than we would. Exactly. 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 So um, on the side, as I was miserable at the law firm, I was still making stuff. And because um, I can't stop. If anyone is an artist, it's just this like need to get the serotonin boost when you're like figuring it out and you did it. Um, and so I was still making things. And I, some, one of my, my best friend from high school said, Sarah, you should sell it on this website called Etsy. That's where people are selling stuff. It's like, you know, going to a craft fair, but it's online. I thought, Oh, great. This sounds terrific. So I put a couple of my pieces up on Etsy and I became obsessed. And were you just obsessed because of the ability to suddenly do this in a virtual platform? Like what was so exciting about that space? Um, I, I love buying things that are handmade. I love supporting artists. I love going to craft fairs. I sell myself. I just thought that this was really innovative. I thought that the website was absolutely gorgeous back in the day. It was, it was so beautiful. It still is absolutely beautiful. And I just saw a lot of potential in how this could grow. And I, you know, I read every, every policy, every, everything on the site, which you could back then. And I wanted to learn as much as possible about this company. And of course you're reading all those policies with a lawyer set Correct. mindset, right? So you're seeing holes and opportunities for supporting them. And you've been knocking on lots of galleries to try to get in front of artists. So here you have a platform a global platform that you can reach people instead of a geographic reach. What was Correct. that first yeah. effort to reach out? I and mean, it must've been a little easier given that you were actually using Etsy. 
Um, so you weren't just like randomly knocking on their door, but they probably also weren't aware they needed you. So that's right. What was that like? I literally sent a cold email to their customer support team saying, hi, I'm Sarah. I'm a lawyer. I'm also, um, I sell on your site and I read some of your policies and I have a couple suggestions of how you could tweak them if you want to talk about it. And someone actually brought that yeah. up the chain. like yeah. of True wow. story. Yeah. They brought it up the chain and said, do you want to speak with our CEO and founder? And I said, sure. And so I spoke with him on the phone and um, this was back in the day of like faxes and stuff. So I had printed out the policies and I had handwritten all over them. And then I like sent it back to him, which, you know, all the lawyers in the audience, I don't know how many lawyers listen to your show. It's probably giving legal advice to someone who isn't your client. It's probably not the best thing, but you got to take a chance and show your work product immediately. And then when I hung up the phone, I thought, well, they don't have an in-house attorney. And I think I would do a really good job at doing this. So I booked a plane ticket. I was living in Rochester, New York at the time. And I booked a plane ticket to New York City. And I called back and said, I'm coming down for an interview next week. I'm going to be your in-house attorney. And what was their response? <laughs> I, <laughs> well, he had to move a meeting. He, <laughs> he told me he was going to be out of town. And I was like, oh my gosh, I got to go cancel my flight. Um, but then he moved some things around and said, great, let's, let's talk. And I showed up with my little resume in one hand and my jewelry in the other hand, because I wanted to prove that I actually understood the community. I was one of them. And we chatted about all sorts of stuff and he hired me on the spot. So are you in your like late twenties at this point? <laughs> sure was. Wow. It's, it's like a lot of chutzpah. I it's mean, chutzpah. yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. It wasn't like you had a lot to lose in a sense. Like you, right. you the plans you had weren't really working. You were you were living at home. Right. You had this law degree. You wanted to yeah. put it to use. And you had a vision. You just didn't until you met Etsy, you didn't understand how your vision could be actualized. Correct. And and, and that's a really good point because a lot of people hear my story and and they can't understand how I did it. And and now I don't think I would be in a place to take such a risk. But back then, you know, I was living in my parents, you know, I I I could do these sort of things, right? Like what's the worst that could happen right now? I have a child, I have a spouse, I have a mortgage. Like there's a, a lot of things that could go wrong. Um, but I could take a chance back then. Yeah. And clearly they said yes. And then you got to be their first in-house counsel yes. and develop a role from scratch. Your first like time doing that Usually you come in and you crib off of the notes left behind by the previous person who has your role. Right. You didn't have that. And there was nobody no. to talk to. You're, I mean, there's, I've been talking a lot about how the, the onlys in an organization. And so you were the only like legal yeah. mind in that organization early on. What was that like when you were getting started and where did you find support? Well, that's a really good question because, um, it was a lot. When when you get into a company, it's like drinking from a fire hose, whatever all those analogies are, right? And at being a little lawyer, you have your issue spotting and my legal brain is very risk averse, but you can take different risks when your company is small. So it's really just a matter of understanding the priorities of the company, understanding the trajectory of the company, understanding the risk tolerance of the company, and then trying to come up with some legal uh, advice. 
And I had never done this before. I actually, while I was in law school, I did have a summer internship in-house at a publishing company. So I had a tiny bit of, you know, so I started there and then I just started reaching out to people um, in New York who are in-house, who are in fashion, in intellectual property. Like I was just in art, like really racking my brain and doing all these searches on the internet and literally cold emailing a ton of people. I would go to um, like in-house counsel legal events. I would go to art law legal events. I just needed to find a community and I did. And I wouldn't have been able to do anything without the community, without networking, none, none, nothing. And this is, I mean, Meetup had just started. So Meetup barely existed. And my Uh, buddy was general counsel of Meetup. That was one of the people I actually reached out to. Yeah. He's, he's amazing. He's amazing. And we, we would get together, some of us, and the sort of way we were cousins, right? Like cousin startups. Um, and we would get together and talk about like legal issues and bars and things like that and cry to each other. Wow. I mean, it's yeah. remarkable. I started in a meetup in 2006. Mm. I ran a group for 11 years, still on the platform um, yeah. since 2006. I don't know how long that's been. Um, but I mean, just amazing the growth that these two companies are having so many issues change like it sounds like early on you said the risk tolerance is sort of one profile and then as things get bigger you have like more opportunity and way more risk and so sort of like what you're saying about having a kid in a mortgage right (laughs) like the 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 risk tolerance is different um and you have to grow in the role but you're building a community along the way it sounds like and you you made a real effort um Back then, it wasn't just a matter of like getting on a Facebook group, um, wow. which even today it really isn't just doing that. But it, you were going to things like tell me a little bit about how you found the time you were trying to establish yourself in a new way. I mean, that sounds like a lot to take <laughs> on for any one person, but clearly you had a passion. But how did yeah. you manage all of it? I'm not sure now that you say it. I, I think it's just because I really believed in the company and I really believed in my role. And I knew that I didn't, I knew sort of what I didn't know. And so I just had to figure out what's the easiest, simplest way to learn it. And when you go to law school, the cool thing is you graduate, hopefully, I mean, when you graduate and you know a lot of lawyers, right? So the law wasn't as much as difficult because all my friends went into different areas of law so I could like reach out to them. It was the very niche New York, like there's just a lot going on um, at Etsy that I had to find experts to help me with. What was the most um, like helpful networking activity that you did that led to you meeting and building relationships with the yeah. kind of people you needed in that moment? I'll tell you actually. Um, so I took a class, the New York State Bar Association had like an in-house counsel one day, learn everything you'll ever need to know about being in-house situation, right? And they do these things every once in a while. And I went and I'm a big note taker and I'm like scribbling all my notes and I'm all excited. And I went up to them afterwards, the the people that ran um, the program. And I said, this was, this is fantastic. Like, thank you so much. Cause you have to know employment law and you have to know immigration and you have to know contracts. You have no IP, like, you, like the cops show up. What are you going to do? Like, there's just so much. Um, and they said, well, do you want to be on our board? <laughs> and I said, yeah, 
I don't know why I said yes. I mean, <laughs> you just say yes to things. I say yes to things a lot. Um, and so that was extremely helpful because I was with in-house attorneys and I'm just going to name like one name from Macy's. Like they, there are a couple of them from Macy's and they were just really welcoming to this new kid in town who was super green and all by herself. And they said like, come to our board meetings. You'll see how we plan these events. And when I would have issues, I could like reach out to them and they would help me. Also, being a lawyer, you can pay for advice. I don't want to pretend I didn't pay for advice. I would do some searching. I would talk to friends and I would find the outside counsels who would be able to help me with a specific area of law. Yeah, which is also about networking. I mean, it's about finding the right person to pay sometimes. That opportunity uh, to to strategically volunteer uh, and that you said yes, probably not knowing exactly what you were saying yes to doing. I was a secretary to take the course. Nobody else was. No. (laughs) But you were, you had shown that you were really good at taking notes. I guess that's true. They saw my notebook. (laughs) Good point. Good point. (laughs) That was your, um, that was your, uh, your trial right there. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, but, but taking on that kind of role separates you out, gives you access to people who are more established And it's a way of giving back before you even need a lot. It's a way of showing up and saying like, I'm here to help. And that way people are starting to to notice you and more willing to take time to point you in the right direction or give you a direct assistance. I mean, this sounds like a lot uh, that a lot of people listening could really take from this story and think about their own career or entrepreneurial journey, because, you know, the challenge was you have this incredible opportunity in front of you. And saying yes also meant a lot of learning and growth, both personal and professional that had to happen in a short amount of time. And I think that's true for people who are open to new opportunities, but you didn't stay there forever. Clearly you've moved on. Um, (laughs) How long were you there? Over nine years, which is, I think, a very long time in startup world. I started as a 17th employee. When I left, we were public. I mean, not only is that a long time, but a lot happened. Yeah. So we were sort of referenced that earlier, just how transformative that time was. I mean, I thought it was a big deal. I started an organization, a nonprofit as the, uh, I was a temp. I was their third employee as a temp. Mm. They hired me. And in three years, we went to nine and a half employees. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> It's so huge. Woo. How do you um, know everyone's name? <laughs> so I don't know. I kept track. Uh, but did you start to, to develop a, a, a deciding, like, was there something calling you to do something else? Like, did something else start to overtake your passions? It sounds like yeah. you like starting new things. I do. Like, what, was the, what was the attraction that took you away from staying in this role? So I love Etsy. I have nothing but awesome things to say about it. I still have a lot of friends who are there and I still shop there like all the time. Um, But I started getting itchy, I like to say. And the thing is when you're at a company for a long time and and it scales the way that Etsy does, your role goes from being a generalist to being more narrow and deep. As I was saying before, like lawyers are typically more narrow and deep. And I loved being a generalist. I love knowing everything. I'm super nosy. Like I like to stick my fingers in all this stuff and see what's going on. And um, an opportunity came to me and I started getting really excited about learning something new. And it, it, you know, it's, it was the company is called Vroom and I was learning about car law. I don't even own a car. And just the idea of all, how how interesting the automobile industry is and the laws that impact purchasing 
vehicles, which is probably the second biggest purchase of someone's life other than a, a home, I started getting really curious. And I thought, you know, maybe it's time for, you know, maybe it's time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it sounds like it was a combination of how your role changed mm-hmm. and this new opportunity that was sort of presented to you, not that you like went looking, but that it right. happened and you didn't say no to it. Right. Um, I hate the story of how I got that job because it was like a recruiter reached out to me when the story of how I got my job at Etsy is like so exciting. <laughs> <It's> just like <laughs> an email showed up and I said, oh, okay, let's talk. <laughs> yeah. But you know, one, you notice the email Two, you act on the email. I mean, listen, <laughs> I want to give you some credit. <laughs> you know, I do act on some emails. So that, yeah, thank you. Thanks good. For, <laughs> good. Really, I mean, really clearly there's evidence in the story that you do. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone ever wondered. So um, how long did you end up at Broom? I was there for three years. They have the cutest name. That is the best name for that kind of role. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard of this online. before. Yeah. 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 It reminds me of my kids though. playing with their cards. It's true. Yeah. It makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, and now you're you have your own business you seem to be like separate from any major organization or company when did that itch happen that you were like i'm ready to really do something as an entrepreneur fully on my own so listen i mean this is this is this is the part where i like bare my soul a little bit um when i was at vroom the me too movement happened and i started realizing that i have been at the board meetings i have been at the tippy top of the executive team. I've been the person helping to figure out what to do. And, and so have so many attorneys, right? And I didn't see there many conversations about the role of the in-house attorney um, with what was happening in the Me Too movement. And one of the reasons was, is we are sworn to secrecy. We cannot tell the stories of what happened to us. I can tell the story of how I got to Etsy, but I can't tell really what I did there, like in detail because of attorney client privilege, confidentiality, that sort of thing. Um, and our laws are broken, like in so many ways. And I started realizing I have all these secret stories that I can't tell. And so do my friends. And I have this giant network. What if I were to collect all these stories and publish them? Couldn't that be a thing? If, if, if I could collect them and I know these people, so they trust me and I collect them anonymously and I change some things. What if I turned it into a play? What if I turned into a theatrical experience that we could all sit in a theater and experience together? So I approached my friend at NYU. I had a fellowship at NYU Law School and we talked about it because we both love theater. And we thought, okay, let's collect a bunch of these stories and turn them into monologues. And in November, 2019, we had our first show. It was called Legal Madness. And it went really well. I hired actors to perform the monologues on stage, acting like they were in-house attorneys. I had collected these stories from my from my friends and from strangers. I, I got a little bit of press and I had like a Google form. People could send me their stories. And then the pandemic hit and I just went all in and I wanted to learn about the theater. I, As you know, I do not have a theater background. I would have mentioned that with my like, you know, jewelry background. Um, and I took a producing class. And I thought to myself, I am in a unique position that no one else is going to be doing this but me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go all in and I'm going to do this really hard thing. And so so in the end, you shifted into the world of theater, which is still like in the general world of art, but very different from what you had known previously. 
Mm-hmm. Did you already have a community that you can lean no, into? Zero, zero community in theater. The only people I knew in the theater community, I didn't even know the lingo. Okay. Oh, I knew people who said that they were producers. And I was like, oh, cool. So I, and they were lawyers, right? I reached out to them. And, and basically, they were the people who would, I would say they're called investors, right? In my world, they're called investors. But in the theater world, they're called producers. Um, and they weren't the doers. They were the money people. And I needed to find the doers to help me understand what I needed to know to be able to push this boulder up a hill. Yeah, because it's it's um, an undertaking. Um, your your model for this was it was there anything that it um, was built off of, like the way you visualize this this being performed and gathering stories? I love 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 theater. I I would always prioritize going to the theater as much as humanly possible. In 2019, I saw 30 shows. Um, this year, I'm trying to see 50. So I guess. And, and just for fun, I just, I love it. I love, love, love theater. I'm a really good audience member. Um, but I took tiny nuggets from all different shows that I liked and they're in my show. And I am now working with a dramaturge, which I didn't even know was a thing. And he said to me, like, Sarah, you've, I know where you took some of this stuff. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, it's fine. Like, I know IP, it's like totally fine. Um, but so I drew inspiration from everywhere. It's great that you had this sort of personal passion that the research you were doing wasn't research. It was just, you're, you're already drawn to do it. I can't even imagine doing 30 or 50 shows. Uh, You would hate it. (laughs) You're like, no, don't, I don't don't know that I would hate it, but it's sort of like, I just started listening to audiobooks on the regular. And it's Uh because I had a hard time imagining like what I would listen to next. And my wife just loads up my app and I'll have to think about it. If someone like just booked me to see shows all the time, I'd go with, but I don't think taking the time to like figure it out. That's a real dedication and passion. I can't even think of 50 shows to to name. Like it's kind of amazing. Well, you know, I have a lot of different ways to find them and I, I'm going to see one tomorrow. I prioritize Wednesday matinees because I can have a flexible schedule. And as I mentioned, I have a family, so I don't want to go at night and um, I go by myself most of the time because I don't want to be sitting next to a friend who's like rolling their eyes at me. Like I'd rather roll my eyes at myself that I went to something terrible. Um, (laughs) So it's really just a matter of making a commitment and prioritizing what's important to you. And I realized I just really love theater. And where are you now with the show? You, you, I know the name has, has changed a little bit. Uh, What is it called now? Dirty legal secrets. I love it. We mentioned at the top of the show. Yes. Uh, and now during the pandemic, what were you doing? Were you still running this in a virtual space or did you no. use the time to build it? I built it. So, you know, I think that my show could be done virtually. And that was something I was exploring early in the pandemic, but I really needed to get the script solid. Um, and so I was working on the script. I was working on building up my network. I got a producer, a dramaturg, a, a director. And I'm so thrilled that we're going to be having a reading soon. Um, I just keep applying to things. And so the Bechdel group is going to be doing a reading. I mean, I don't know when this is going to air. October. So it, yeah, okay, so yeah. it did a reading and it went so well. It was so amazing. The reading was fantastic. Um, and <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, 
before we switch gears, while we're still talking about all this, I mentioned at the top of the show uh, that you have the honor of having created America's ugliest necklace. <laughs> and what I find really interesting about this story isn't the necklace and that you created is that you were searching for things to like participate in, like that you were actively seeking contests or yeah. like things to do. And is that a practice of yours to sort of um, keep your keep your talent sharp and and like find good community and be in a good energy around it? When I am stressed out, sometimes I search for contests. <laughs> and believe it or not, especially contests of skill, like this, uh, you know, ugliest necklace thing, sometimes it, people don't enter that, like there aren't that many entries because the barrier to entry is like a little higher. And so I really like looking for quirky contests when I, I haven't done this in years, um, but when I was applying to college, I did it. I think I did it when I was um, really miserable at the law firm, when I was, you know, getting my job at Etsy, I would just like look up quirky contests and apply. Well, folks, we will definitely put a link in the show notes. So you can see the soy sauce pocket. And okay. Thank you. I thought you about say the that. banana. I mean, so- I could, I didn't actually see the banana, but I understand there was one. Um, yeah. I mean, no one wants a necklace with a soy sauce packet on it. That's scary, right? Although like I love the idea around how it's like all the childhood toys end up in a random drawer. My kid's stuff is like in that yeah. random drawer that also has the soy sauce packet. So it, it, it yeah. is as if that drawer came to life. Well done. I don't think I don't think there was very much thought put into the ugly necklace. I just grabbed a bunch of stuff and I happened to be eating takeout food at the time. And then they, the next year they changed the rules that it had to be a certain percentage beads. Cause I think I like took it to a level they weren't expecting when I was like, I'm gonna put a soy sauce packet on here. Well then like, basically <laughs> you can, you are the reigning champion then. Really. No, no, I mean, no, I, I applied the next, the next year. Cause I won, I won, <laughs> I won beads and I love beads. Like, give me beads. Um, I tr- I tried the next year and I did not win. So sad. Which means you still won. I mean, I won at one point. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so when you're thinking about like your network, um, you know, you've met so many people and you've had quite a diverse sort of professional track and now focusing more on this art and you know, the theater world. So you have sort of the inner circle of friends that you know you're going to stay in touch with one way or another. But I always wonder about that second and third tier or second and third layer out. The people you might see once a year at a conference or you work with five years ago, I should mention you like these people. <laughs> you enjoy them. They enjoy you. How do you think about nurturing and sustaining those kinds of connections, any habits, philosophies, or practices? Um, was it like, Dale Carnegie and, you know, how to win friends and influence people or something like that. Be genuinely interested in other people. If you see an article that you think of your friends, even if you haven't talked to them in five years, send it to them. If you see their name, like say hi, I I think it's just, or like, okay. So recently I, I got a job as an adjunct professor at NYU and my brain started exploding like, whoa, this is a brand new thing for me. And so I started reaching out to some of my buddies who are also adjuncts asking for advice. I think it's really, it's, it's as simple as that. You know, when they come to mind, reach out, say hi, be genuinely interested. So you're based uh, in, in New York City, in Brooklyn. Uh, yeah. Is 
and now that the pandemic is allowing this to be a possibility or move before the pandemic, were you ever into hosting dinners? Because that's no. like a great space to do that. Have you ever seen me cook? No, I didn't mean in person. Oh. At, at your home, I oh. meant like restaurants. <laughs> oh, have you ever seen me make a reservation? <laughs> I think that's a great idea. And I love, and I have some friends who do that and I have so much respect for them. I just don't have that in me. Yeah. I did, you know, okay. I, I did it a little bit when I was, um, when I was at Etsy, I did bring together lawyers from all different companies that, that, that I was buddies with. Um, there was this, uh, trademark association called Inta and I reached out to all of them and I said, Hey, we're all in like user generated content world. Let's all get together at, you know, here and, 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 and schmooze schmooze. Um, so I did that and I, a little bit, but I, but I'm not the kind of person who books, you know, a private room at a restaurant and brings, you know, 50 people who I think should know each other together and makes a ton of introductions. That sounds really exhausting to me. Oh, I was thinking eight, eight, still exhausting. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. I was trying to yeah. scale it down. I, you know, I want, Hey, listen, if you're a friend of mine listening to this, or even not a friend of mine, invite me because I very much like food and yeah. I will show up. Yeah, Maybe. that's great. Um, and are there any sort of um, other tips that you have for how you're able to stay in touch with people? Like, um, you know, is this is it through social media, a newsletter, or just like messaging people as they come top of mind? Is it really more organic? Yeah, I think it's more for me. It's more organic. I know that there are a lot of people who are into more social media. I'm a, more of a private person when it comes to that sort of thing. But I love you know commenting on other people's stuff. Um, but it's, it's pretty organic for me. I love being, I love getting people's newsletters and being invited to their things. Um, I have a newsletter from uh, dirty legal secrets and it's just, I don't, I don't use it that often. <laughs> <laughs> I should, well, you know, you, marketing, well, marketing and legal don't always go together. Yeah. Know? They're different, yeah. They're different brains. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good point. So uh, one of my favorite questions as we wrap up is um, to be thinking about your future. And I know we're going to keep crossing paths. Um, so a year from now, if I suddenly realized that this was a year ago, this interview, and I'm asking you about you know, what's going on in your life, I want to know what we're going to be celebrating for you. What are we going to be toasting to? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? My Tony Award, obviously. I mean, aim big, right? Like I, I, I keep getting rejected from these um, theater, theatrical submission things. I mean, every once in a while, I make it a little bit farther and I'm super excited that I have this thing coming up. Well, actually it just passed or whatever, whatever. Uh, what is time? Robbie, what is time? I don't even know. But I, I really hope that we're going to be celebrating that, I, that, that Dirty Legal Secrets is making it a little bit farther in the process. It, it, it's, it's extremely hard to take nothing and turn it into a play um, somewhere. I want to be celebrating that. And I want to celebrate that with you. And now, but I also want to ask you more about the play. Tell me what's the impact you're hoping for. I imagine it's about starting a conversation or continuing yes. a conversation that maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it needs uh, to be had. I, I, I would, I don't know the answer to some of the questions that I'm posing into the in the play. And I want people to leave having conversations about what they just saw. And I really hope that policy people, journalists, lawyers, intellectuals, thinkers, people who write books can come see this show and see sh stories that 
no one can talk about um, and start thinking about how we can change some of our policies, how we can change some of our laws. Wow. I would definitely cheers to that. That's amazing. How can people find you and follow your work? Follow my work. Okay. I have my own little website, sarahfeingold.com. You can find me, Sarah Feingold, in all sorts of places. There is a Sarah Feingold who's like a makeup artist. That is not me. Um, and then dirty, dirtylegal.com is my play. Awesome. We will put all those links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Robbie. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sarah. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share it resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 302. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you. And I look forward to connecting again next week when we'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained the professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.